Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to episode 35 of the QuietMark podcast. I'm your host, Simon Gosling, CMO at QuietMark. And QuietMark is the independent global certification program associated with the UK Noise Abatement Society Charitable Foundation. Through scientific testing and assessment, QuietMark identifies the quietest products in multiple categories spanning many sectors, including home appliances and technology, building sector materials, and commercial sector products. It's 2022, and this is a special year for QuietMark because this year we celebrate our 10th anniversary. What started in January 2012 with a mission to restore the value of quiet back into society has since grown into an invaluable resource, making it easier for consumers, architects and trade buyers to source the quietest products and building materials, which enhance well-being through reduced noise in our homes and improved acoustics throughout the built environment. QuietMark was co-founded by a mother and daughter team, Gloria Elliott, OBE, and Poppy Skeeler. Gloria Elliott is co-founder and chair of QuietMark and the chief executive of the Noise Abatement Society. And Poppy Skeeler is our CEO and co-founder. And in 1959, Gloria's father, Poppy's grandfather, John Connell OBE, established the Noise Abatement Society as the only charity NGO in the UK, indeed the world, that specialises in every aspect of sound, how it affects us and how the sound that we make affects others. In the About Us page on quietmark.com, under our heritage, you'll find a story of our beginnings which starts with entrepreneurial businessman John Connell OBE. He believed exposure to excessive noise profoundly affects health, children's learning, productivity and general quality of life, calling noise the forgotten pollutant. John was instrumental in lobbying the Noise Abatement Act through Parliament in 1960 when noise became a statutory nuisance for the first time in the UK. Our two guests on this episode also believe that lobbying Parliament is a way to make necessary change that improves people's lives and the health of our planet. Daniel Slade is the Policy and Projects Manager at Town & Country Planning Association and Kat Hode is Director and Founder, Renovation Project Management and Interior Design Practice, Absolute Project Management, a business which is a founding signatory of Interior Design Declares, an organisation for which Kat is on the steering committee. On their website, tcpa.org.uk, the Town and Country Planning Association headline states, We work to challenge, inspire and support people to create healthy, sustainable and resilient places that are fair for everyone. There's a page about their work with the Healthy Homes Act and on that it says, What are we calling for? Too many homes and neighbourhoods built today undermine residents' health and well-being. The TCPA has developed new legislation in the form of a Healthy Homes Bill to stop this. Where we live has profound effects on our health throughout our lives, both in terms of short-term safety and long-term quality of life. Yet, there is overwhelming evidence that too many new homes and neighbourhoods in England are seriously undermining residents' well-being and life chances. The way we regulate the built environment needs radical change. This campaign calls on government to adopt our Healthy Homes Bill, which would require all new homes and neighbourhoods to be of decent quality and effectively outlaw those which undermine residents' health and well-being. Cat Hode manages Interior Design Declares, one of several UK Declares pledges under the Built Environment Declares body. Built Environment Declares is a global petition uniting all strands of construction and the built environment. 
It is both a public declaration of our planet's environmental crisis and a commitment to take positive action in response to climate breakdown and biodiversity collapse. Built Environment declares can be used by everyone included in the sector. Since May 2019, over 1,000 architectural practices in the UK have made a declaration of climate and biodiversity emergency, acknowledging the extreme seriousness of our situation and making a public commitment to positive change. They have been joined by structural, civil and building service engineering practices, landscape architects, contractors, interior designers, suppliers and project managers in the UK and internationally, amounting to over 7,000 practices worldwide. Given that background and the obvious similarities and synergies of each of our organisations, it felt like a great idea to bring Kat and Daniel together for this episode, looking at building healthier, more sustainable houses and buildings and the role of improved acoustic build and interior design in elevating the well-being of occupants in those spaces. Kat and Daniel, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. How are you both? Good. Yeah, very good. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Where am I talking to you first, Kat? I'm in Islington in London. I'm actually working from home this afternoon. Okay, cool. And Daniel? I'm from the very far reaches of southwest London in Morden. Lovely. And I'm over here in Acton, so we've got uh, good bits of London covered over here. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So I gave a, an outline there in the introduction to your work and your organisations, but starting with you, Kat, if I may, tell us a bit more about what you do with a Built Environment Declares Body. Interior Design Declares is a pledge by interior designers and the suppliers to the profession to be more sustainable. As you said earlier, Simon, um, we set ourselves up within the framework of the Built Environment Declares movement. It's both a public declaration of the environmental emergency that we're going through and a commitment to take positive action in response to climate breakdown and biodiversity collapse. So essentially, we are working on awareness raising amongst the profession and suppliers too, as I say, and as a lobbying force as part of, as one of the prongs of Built Environment Declares to persuade government and other bodies who have control over that kind of stuff to um, make sure change happens. My practice, Absolute Project Management, is an interior design and project management practice focusing on residential renovations. If you plan to remodel or renovate or extend your home, we will design the space and project manage the steps you need to take to implement it. Mm-hmm. We're based in London and Brighton, and we occasionally work on projects in other areas. I set the business up about 14 years ago. I had been a solicitor in the city and had no time, but was having to project manage my own renovation um, project. Mm-hmm. and worked out that I quite liked it and I was quite good at it and the Uh similarities between um, transaction management in a city environment and what I was doing was very similar, obviously a lot less law involved and much more creative, much less lucrative, but (laughs) but much more creative. Um, And luckily for my own project, I had a really good builder, but not very good support otherwise because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, So I was taught on the job almost exactly by the the builder and set it up and wondered if other people would pay me to do it and they did and then we've we've grown and expanded from there and we, I've got an amazing team now of nine people and yeah so it's all worked really well and um, we are as a business 
quite heavily involved with the British Institute for Interior Design, which is a body, well, it's an institute which is quite prestigious, um, of interior designers of all sorts in the UK. And the aims of it are education and uh, quality raising and a certain amount of lobbying and so on, and a, and a, a body to, to run how the industry works. We're quite heavily involved with that as a business. Um, and my colleague, Liz Bell, is the chair of the sustainability committee at the BIID. BIID have written an extremely useful guide called the Sustainable Specifying Guide, Mm -hmm. which is a detailed guide to sustainability for designers and contains information and practical steps about how to lower our environmental impact as designers. Several of the people on that committee are other joint founders of Interior Design Declares. So I essentially got involved with it via the BIID. Right, I see. Well, we'll talk about the work that you're doing with those other signatories soon in the show, and I look forward to asking you about that. But first, Daniel, again, welcome to the show. And if you could do, as Kat has just kindly done, summarise what you do with Town and Country Planning Association and how you came to be involved in that and what your goals and aims are. So I wanted to start the story um, going back in time to the origins of the Town and Country Planning Association uh, in 1899. So this was a period of massive social change and political unrest. The Industrial Revolution was driving really intense uh, mechanisation and urbanisation. And many people across the country were deeply concerned about the human impact of this process. People were living in squalid, decaying conditions that were unhealthy and oppressive. And the countryside was emptying uh, of people rapidly. Now, a core part of this concern was really about the idea of tranquility and peace being lost. So this was a period when uh, just a generation ago, most people's families, most people's communities were fundamentally rural. Uh, They lived in hamlets and small villages, and all of a sudden they were working in these dark mills, and their world had fundamentally changed. And out of that, and in response to that, the Garden City Association, as the TCPA started its life, was founded. And the idea was to campaign for garden cities. So these were planned new developments. I think the two purest examples of them uh, in in the UK are Letchworth and Wellin. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to create that space for human flourishing, that tranquility, it's not just about the gardens themselves. I mean, that's what's in the name. But really, the fundamental point about this was a way of organising human society, which enabled uh, the good life, really. Um, so fast forwarding 125 years to the present day, uh, there's some really worrying parallels beginning to emerge again between now and that Victorian era. Perhaps most concerningly, uh, building slums is back. The slums of the future are currently being constructed. Uh, through a lack of regulation, um, through a lack of resourcing at different levels of government. But this is where the Healthy Homes Act campaign, uh, which I'm leading, emerged from. It was the need to install minimum standards which guarantee that we don't go back to constructing what I think can safely be described as actual slums. Uh, And that that is the foundation of the campaign. Well, that's really interesting. So the correlation, it seems, between the two of you, and one of the reasons why I brought on the show, is this... I am familiar with the headlines of Boris saying, build, build, build. 
And one has a concern, and we've heard with this has been raised on uh, this program, that with build, 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 and speed, 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 can often come cheap, cheap, cheap. And I don't know, but it seems that you, they mentioned there, Daniel, about slums of the future being built. And also, you've mentioned CAT, about a collective of people saying that we need to make a shift in the way that we specify materials for home building so that people specify better products, sustainable products. Is there a sort of a conflict going on here where with build, 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 which could lead to cheap, 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 it doesn't necessarily mean good, good, good or sustainable, sustainable, sustainable? Is that is that a fear that's <laughs> in the marketplace right now? It's a serious concern. Um, I think the key thing here is to not deliver more homes by sacrificing quality. Uh, there's a, a way this is often framed uh, in the media and especially in the world of sort of think tanks and Westminster policy, where the only way to deliver more homes through the private sector or the public sector is to reduce standards, burn regulations and get us to a point where they can be delivered cheaply and in bulk because of that. Yeah. Now, I think that's it's a, it's a false dichotomy. Uh, you, We can deliver these. We've seen in the past, in fact, that we can deliver large amounts of housing to a high standard uh, and not sacrificing our principles around this. Uh, and I think the last thing to point out now about those concerns is that it's a false economy. Uh, removing these, uh, whether they're environmental regulations, regulations around quality relating to health, including acoustics, getting rid of them now just results in extreme health impacts down the line, which we need to soak up through the healthcare system or in relation to climate change clear problems around resilience and and uh, actual carbon emissions which we'll just have to address in the future at a much much higher cost i agree i think it is the problem of short termism which is obviously mm. driven by political for you know there are political reasons for that but doing things cheaply and quickly without thinking about them properly is nearly always a bad idea with clients that we work with, everybody wants to have their house renovated as quickly as possible. And we really stress that it's important. It's important that people give really deep thought to how they want their spaces to be rather than making quick decisions so that something can be um, implemented quickly. And I think that's particularly true with thinking about sustainability and choosing sustainable options as you said Daniel if the if places are built quickly and without thought and to a poor standard they will not last well they'll have to be redone which is unsustainable in itself and they won't be healthy and attractive places to live The declares movement, is that seeking to level the playing field because you might have two interior design companies quoting on the same brief and one is determined to be sustainable and another one is determined to win the contract through undercutting and being cheap and not necessarily sustainable? And are you seeking to sort of almost outlaw that from happening so that there's a standard which shows that you have to be sustainable and no one can undercut in cheap, unsustainable ways? Yeah, we'd really like there to be standards for various aspects of the design and specifying process. 
Daniel, that must be music to your ears that this declares movements <laughs> in existence, surely. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think transformation across the whole of the sector requires a kind of pincer movement from uh, those in the sector who work in development and construction and interiors and those who work on the regulatory side. So that's more our position, but also I think communities as well. Um, half of us, that's our side of this campaign, need to essentially open the drawbridge. We need to change the regulatory standards so that we avoid the current situation, which is a race to the bottom in so many ways. And instead, the regulatory system rewards those firms that actually pursue the highest standards. One way to think about the whole way that the regulation of the built environment currently functions is that it's all about mitigating the worst health impacts of changes to the built environment. So you build a home, you build a town, uh, maybe you build a, a city, and they go through the planning process, it goes through various uh, health and safety processes, and you kind of take the edges off the worst excesses, the whether that's noise, whether it's climate, you try and mitigate those impacts, rather than the active pursuit of health and well-being through these developments. And I think that's what we really need to do. I think there's also an element of education and it, that possibly relates to the sort of small scale projects that certainly my practice works on and other lots of other interior designers work on. It's a question of saying to clients, the cheapest way of doing this is as follows, but there are other options. They may be more expensive, but they have in many cases, a better outcome for you in your house. So if you've got low VOC paints, for example, mm -hmm. the environment is going to be more pleasant than uh, one that's been painted with high VOC paints, whether it's in terms of the smell or the, the general, the sort of longer term, less um, discernible impact on your health. And very often, I think our job is to help clients understand that there are options, work out the costs of those and make informed decisions rather than not really realise that, that there are options out there. And certainly in, in with what we do until very recently, there have been very few, there's been very little publicity about sustainable options. Interesting. You were saying there that you sort of explained to the client um a product, a paint, for example, and it's costing. Yeah. But it seems, if unless I misunderstood you, that the client could say, oh, well, that's too expensive, so let's use the unsustainable version. But aren't we looking for interior companies to say, well, sorry, if you want that, you can't, we won't be the company that does your project for you. If you're going to work with us, we'll only use sustainable products. I think that's right. Um, I think in reality and where we are, as a profession, it has to be come at through various from various angles. So ideally, there are standards below which people can't specify. So you can't use horribly high VOC paint, for example, but that we help to educate clients about the options. Mm -hmm. And eventually, I guess you're, you're right that we say, okay, well, yeah, we're simply not working with those materials. Um, and I think in, in many cases we're we're doing that already, but it's not it's not regulated, and to a certain extent it's an economic question. If you haven't got any work, it's quite difficult to say we absolutely won't work with this particular insulation product because it's horrible from an environmental point of view. Yes, 
But I think something which is extremely significant here is the importance of behaviour change, uh, particularly in relation to new technologies and people adopting those technologies. These are the technologies we need to respond to climate change effectively. Uh, but where they are difficult to live with or uncomfortable, for example, if they're too noisy and they uh, they produce poor living conditions, they're likely to be rejected. Um, so I think an important example are around heat pumps and the importance of regulating that kind of technology quickly. And I think there are other types perhaps we can talk about as well. Uh, wind turbines are a famous example of this and charging stations for cars. But I think heat pumps are particularly significant. Um, interestingly, heat pumps are one of an area of um, sustainable work that is actually regulated by the current planning legislation. So if you have a heat pump, if it produces over noise over a certain level, it has to have an attenuation box over it. And I know, Simon, your uh, quiet mark is very interested in the quieter versions of heat pumps. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that just links to sort of well-being and and, uh, and and acoustics because yes uh we do certify the quietest heat pumps in fact there's a fantastic video on youtube at the moment from grant and the title of that is how quiet is a grant heat pump and it's a clever little video because it shows a heat pump and you're about a meter away from it and i think it hits about 49 decibels and then it shows the volume of other uh appliances and machines within the home like a uh, a kettle or a, a lawnmower, which is 90 decibels, or a, a washing machine or a dishwasher. And it shows that actually the heat pump, uh, their heat pump, is quieter than some of those household appliances that we use every single day, which is really helping towards, you know, having a quieter home. And it's interesting here because I think when you buy a product, you know, we're talking about well-being but there's also the well-being of the the buyer i think if you buy a heat pump you, you're doing so because you are eco-minded you want to do something for the planet certainly at the moment because they're quite expensive although the prices are coming down yeah they are they are that's right and obviously there's the green grants which have been announced which are coming out in april next year where uh, looking to encourage them into ninety thousand homes is what i read on the bbc website but yeah. i think added to the well-being factor of, I feel good. I've bought something which is heating my home with renewable energy. But there's also the well-being factor that uh, if you buy a quiet one and you improve your domestic soundscape, you also experience well-being because it's uh, it's quieter, there's less distraction, you're able to focus more on your work from home if that's what you're doing. So feel good goes all around that. And Daniel, uh, that reminds me of uh, this sort of well-being factor. One of our guests on the Quiet Mark podcast on episode two was Ethan Bordeaux, who is the sound concept lead at the Well Building Institute. And I saw something on your website, Daniel, which was similar to these well concepts. In fact, you call it your healthy home principles. Maybe I'll let you explain more about your healthy home principles and what they what they stand for, please, Daniel. Certainly. Yeah. Uh, the healthy home principles we developed to try and uh, encapsulate what we mean by a healthy home. So these are the basic, almost biological standards required for homes to uh, support their residents' health and well-being. Now, there are a few really significant things about, about these principles. I think the first thing to note is that they're hilariously common sense. They're extremely high level and they're mm -hmm. the kind of a thing we would argue the public probably assumes are embedded somewhere in policy or legislation. They're guaranteed in some way. And yet the majority of those principles, things like um, access to natural light, uh, things like access to a walkable neighbourhood and access to green space, are not guaranteed anywhere in uh, 
policy or legislation. Uh, these are things which homes can be constructed and completely lack uh, these different aspects. So that's I think that's the first thing to mention. The second thing are that these principles apply to the level of place, not just individual buildings. So this is the wider landscape. Maybe you could define it as the neighbourhood. Mm. And what this acknowledges is critical importance of that wider context. A lot of the uh, regulation of the quality of new homes comes through things like building standards. And now the issue with that is that it doesn't get to that wider level. For example, the location of a home, how well connected it is to the local environment. And we know that all these things are of fundamental importance to the to the quality of new homes, especially in terms of how they support people's health and uh, well-being. So the principles capture that wider context as well. Now, the other thing to mention is that they don't define individual technical standards in any of these particular areas whether it concerns climate resilience or whether it concerns uh, access to public transport, for example. What they do is provide a principle as a, as a anchor in national legislation that says that these, these standards should be developed around this. So it's a reorientation of the system to which a series of standards, but the principles themselves are very high level and aren't, there are no metrics associated with them. They're not, they're not quantified. So it's really about changing the way that we do regulation. And I think the, the, particular principles in the future might give birth to standards which which draw on the well home standards they might draw on uh principles developed are by climate change uh, organizations charities campaigning for that kind of thing uh, but they create the the space for these new standards to come into later on in in law yeah and i'd say i'd say it's, it's really important that along with or as part of what you're talking about daniel that considerations given to how all of those things are actually produced so there's mm. I mean there's a big crossover between well-being for example and sustainability so mm. ideally you specify in a way that is sustainable and promotes well-being on the other hand there's a contradiction or a clash to be aware of between um it, you can have something that's for example very well sand insulated but if the sand insulation is made from virgin plastic which is not recyclable then question whether what you have you have to decide what's more important and ideally from the uh, from the interior from interior design declares point of view you look at effective but lower environmental impact alternatives Quiet Mark, as you're probably aware, Cat and Daniel, one of the things we have is uh, some really good uh, retailer partnerships with retailers like John Lewis and Argos and Very. And something we've heard from John Lewis recently is that they're receiving 10,000 quiet searches per month for products. Um, they're noticing, you know, when you go to a website, you can filter for washing machines, manufacturers, costs. But there's also a filter on the John Lewis website where you can filter also for quiet marks. So, Kat, let me ask you, what resources are out there platform-wise that enable uh, interior designers and the declares movement, all the parties involved in that, to specify sustainable products? Um, that's an interesting question, Simon. The problem is that currently there isn't there not isn't really a way of filtering for products on the basis of what's sustainable and then far less on the basis of particular sort of slices of sustainability, such as whether it's made from recycled materials, the right recyclability of the materials, the carbon footprint of the methods of production, and so on. 
um, at the moment, we're essentially working things out for ourselves, which is why one of the things that interior design declares is aiming to do is to have resources on the website for exactly that purpose. And one of the things that the BIID, Sustainable, Sustainable Specifying Guide, is also going to be expanded into is directories of those products. Yeah, I think what's really interesting here is that we're all interested uh, in this conversation in driving behavioural change. Uh, you mentioned this topic earlier. I think I think it's really the case that technology on its own is not the answer, whether that's about health or whether that's about uh, climate change um, in terms of resilience or emissions and what's sustainable. We're trying to create, I think, frameworks to shape demand, provide more information uh, and in, drive development in that sense. So uh, if I could get quite abstract with a, an example and bear with me, this is uh, departing a little bit from acoustics, but is, is closely related really. Mm-hmm. We saw an example of what could have been the adoption of a technology which would have been so significant from an vi- environmental uh, perspective uh, in the, um, the construction of uh, wind turbines. So this is the early 2000s. The government of the day decided the way to get as many wind turbines built as possible to push down energy costs and try and reduce carbon emission would be to loosen the rules up and make them as easy to build as possible. But what that did was meant, it meant that communities uh, had very little say in their construction, had very little awareness of the impact, didn't have a part to play in that decision making uh, or understanding about how it would shape their communities and what the advantages and disadvantages would be. As a result, there was an enormous backlash and from, I think, about 2011. Been extremely hard to build onshore wind turbines uh, in in England, and I think that's just an example of what happens when you get this build, build, build mentality. And then the next step from that is to say, okay, let's uh, strip back uh, guidance and policy and regulation, let the market rip to deliver these things without providing the information you need or realizing that in some senses, sensible regulation, sensible standards can actually enable the adoption of this kind of game-changing technology. I think that applies, as we discussed earlier, uh, in relation to heat pumps and so many other things with acoustics within all of this, obviously being really fundamentally important. But for us, that change in uh, that orientation towards technology, that change uh, in orientation towards standards and housing and uh, building technology as well, is to a great extent about the way we do regulation, uh, what we aspire to do and a system which actually tries to in actively improve people's health and well-being rather than something that sits in the background, turns up and then tries to take the edge off of the worst impacts. At the beginning of the show, I mentioned how John Connell had lobbied Parliament to get noise recognised as a pollutant and the Noise Abatement Act passed through government. So I can see sort of uh, John uh, at home in his armchair having a chat with his family who still run Quiet Mark and uh, saying to them, we're getting close. I think the Act is going to pass. All the work that we're doing, all the lobbying, all the meetings are now culminating in an Act which is going to get noise recognised as a pollutant. All the things we've worked hard to, to, to achieve have come to fruition and the Noise Abatement Act has been passed. How close to your finish lines are you both? Uh, starting with you, Daniel, please. Uh, it's a really, really good question. 
For anyone who's been involved in lobbying in Westminster, it's always an uphill battle, which makes the work which the Noise Abatement Society have, has done in the past just even more impressive. Uh, I think we're a long way, actually, from fundamentally changing the way we do these things. Uh, it requires a, maybe not ideological, but certainly an a change in ethics, a, a, a change in the way that we think about guaranteeing people's standard of life across the country. Uh, I think we will open up a really good space for debate in Parliament over these issues. Uh, we're doing a lot of lobbying at the moment on the Building Safety Bill and had some very important conversations in the House of Commons about this. Um, but as ever, actually securing legislative change is extremely difficult. And I think we're we're at the beginning of a long journey, I think, uh, I think is the way to phrase it. We might get lucky, we might bring around this fundamental change. Uh, now, I think, I think if that's going to happen, it's because these issues of health and well-being of the environment are so in, intrinsically personal and affect individuals so much, they're quite hard to argue against. Mm. Uh, that regulatory aspect, that aspect about how we think about quality in the built environment, maybe refer from that, and it's going to be a very, very interesting journey. And of course, I described it as a finish line. I think John would have thought once the Act was passed, that's actually when the hard work really begins. It, it's a never-ending journey. But uh, putting the question to you, if I may, please, Kat, do you feel like the goals that you're aiming to achieve are within sight? I think the sort of foothills are within sight, but I think there are big mountains ahead, to keep that analogy going. <laughs> um, but I do, I am reassured and made optimistic by the awareness of the environment and the, and the huge importance of um, improving how we interact with it. There's masses to be done, and I think there's it's a kind of um, area where there will always be more to be done. But I think it's it's extremely promising that so many people are really passionate about it and talking about it in all sorts of walks of life. Well, I am glad you've both got your mountaineering boots on. <laughs> um, you're both on incredible journeys, um, as Quiet Mark itself is. We're all on a mission. Uh, I'm very grateful to you both for taking the time to talk to us on the show today about yours. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Our thanks to Kat and Daniel for taking time to talk to us about their missions on the Quiet Mark podcast. Since recording that episode in autumn last year, QuietMark has had some very exciting news because we've announced a new strategic partnership to prioritise well-being in buildings through noise reduction with MBS, the leading construction data and specification platform. Every day, over 3,600 practices, which includes 89% of Architect Journal's top 100 architects, they use it to make 13.6 million specification decisions monthly. And QuietMarks joined forces with MBS to make it easier for those specifiers to source acoustic products. So now, when they go to the MBS platform, they can filter for QuietMarks certified materials. Earlier in the show, you'd have heard me ask Kat if it was possible for specifiers to filter for sustainably produced materials. And she said that whilst measures were being taken, that's still something that wasn't currently possible. Nevertheless, I went onto MBS's website, thembs.com, and in their knowledge hub, I looked up sustainability and I found some interesting and encouraging materials. There are a couple of webinars, one of which was posted on the 12th of February 2021, called Holistic Specification of Materials. And it says, 
urgent radical change is required across the construction industry to respond to the climate emergency. And that includes a discussion on how architects and design teams can achieve health and sustainability goals through informed material selection. And in addition, only today, the 12th of January, as I make this recording, MBS has shared another report, which is the 10 key takeaways from the Digital Construction Report of 2021. Over 900 construction professionals gave their views, and one of the key 10 highlights, which MBS believe will continue to be relevant in 2022, is point number one, titled Digital Ways of Working, which are helping to address industry and societal challenge. It says that 80% of those 900 construction professionals agree that digital is helping to create better buildings and places, and 75% say that digital is having a positive impact on environmental sustainability. So it's great to see MBS bringing sustainability to the forefront of their specification platform, and I look forward to discussing the platform further with them on a forthcoming episode of the Quiet Mark podcast. For now, thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you can join us for future episodes. Happy New Year again. I hope that 2022 proves to be a healthy and successful year for you. Thank you, and bye-bye.